Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. We'll say that I am glad to be here today. I wasn't 100% sure that I was going to be here, so I was going to make it. Uh, you see, a couple weeks ago was Hannah's 13th birthday. It's really hard to believe that I have two teenagers now at home. That is just making me feel so old. But for her birthday, she really wanted to go up to Liberty's Snowflex Center, which is a year-round ski facility. So here I am on Friday. Here I am on Friday. There we go. Wait for it. Yeah. You know, it was actually, and that you laughed that it was me it makes me, again, sad, but, you know, I could assure you if this had been me on Friday, this would have been me today. <laughs> and there is, this is not a joke, not for fun, uh, literally, on Wednesday morning, I told uh, Jordan, I said, Jordan, I'm going to be going to this place. I have never skied, ever. I've never snowboarded. I've only, I think, gotten on ice skates once, maybe twice, ever, so I'm not a winter sports guy, so I said, if I do this... There is a strong possibility that I will not be preaching Sunday because I will have broken something or died in the process of doing it, so you better be prepared. So I, he said he would be, so hopefully uh, that's the case. But no, it was a lot of fun. Uh, it's a year-round snow facility, or skiing facility, excuse me. You say, how can it be year-round? It's because there's no snow. If I zoom in here, you'll see these mats. Uh, so imagine a piece of Velcro. You know, in Velcro, you've got like a fuzzy side and a prickly side, and you put them together and they stick. Well, imagine just the prickly side, longer, a little thicker, a little bigger, with sprinklers uh, all throughout this thing, with misters that kind of like put a little light layer of water on it. You can ski on this. And there are people coming down the mountain, you know, like making it look so easy. And I'm sitting on the bunny hill, which I literally only did five times. And I was like, I'm done. <laughs> That's high risk, low reward for me at this point in life. I'm not interested in that. Uh, but these people are just going, doing all kinds of crazy things, having a lot of fun, and uh, I found that my favorite part of skiing is sitting in the lodge. That's what I like, a cup of coffee and a book, and you can stay as long as you want. I'm good. I can sit there the rest of the day now. I'm happy, but we did have a lot of fun, and I am thankful to be here this morning because I wasn't sure I would be. We're going to be reading Galatians 6, verses 1 through 10, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer, ask his blessing on our time. So if you will now, look at verse 1. Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We you bow your heads with me? Father, we ask your blessing on our time uh, 
today, our, our text, it's kind of here and there, and I just, it's hard to sometimes know how to put all of this together in a way that will make sense in a sermon style, but your word always makes sense, and your word always convicts and challenges us, and so I pray that your spirit will be active here this morning doing that in our midst, and I pray that as we go out, we will be committed to uh, obeying, we'll be dependent on you, Lord, and on your spirit for the fulfillment of that obedience, that we will go out knowing what it means to live a life that is walking in the Spirit day by day. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since we were uh, making a trip to Liberty anyway, we decided to add a college tour in while we were there. It's, again, hard to believe that I'm at that point of life that I'm starting to do a couple of, uh, of these college tours. I had never been to Liberty before, um, and I don't know how many of you know anything about it, but I will say just from my perspective, not having any prior experience with it, that it was exactly what I expected it to be. Uh, for those of you who don't know much about the world of Christian higher education, which since that's such a long phrase, from here on out, I'm just going to say C-H-E, okay? Uh, for those of you who don't know much about the world of C-H-E, uh, Liberty is sort of the envy of the C-H-E world, but not perhaps for the reason you might think at first. The reason they're the envy is because they are flush with cash. Uh, you know, most C-H-E institutions are cash-strapped. Cash Boy, this is hard to say. Cash-strapped, you know, they, they don't have endowments that they're getting money from on a, a yearly basis. They don't have uh, businesses on the side that support the school or whatever the case may be. Most of them are dependent on tuition and the generous support of their donors and their monthly supporters in order to fund the school. Uh, that's the case for the vast majority of schools, Christian schools that are out there, but not for Liberty. Uh, the online school that they have there is the largest online Christian university in the world. And their online school is also in the top five of all online schools. So to put that in a little bit of perspective, uh, the tour guide told us, I assume he was telling the truth, but the tour guide told us that they have 8,000 on-campus resident students, so 8,000 students in the dorms. They then have an additional 6,000 that live in the Lynchburg area and come on campus for school. So you got 14,000 students on campus, 8,000 live on campus, six live off campus. But their total enrollment is over 100,000. Over 86,000 online students. Think about all that that would mean for the school because these are students they don't have to feed, they don't have to house, they don't have to put uh, you know, chairs in a classroom for them to sit in. You know, all of this is being done online, and it has been a cash cow. And I don't say that in a negative way. I'm just saying it in a, a reality kind of way. It's, a, it's been a cash cow for them, and they are flushed because of all of this. And so you can get that. So I knew... I knew, I don't know who it was, that's okay, never want to know. I knew that when we walked on campus, whatever we were going to see, it was going to be amazing, right? Because when you've got that much money and you're spending it everywhere, you're going you're gonna to be impressed. And sure enough, uh, we were, everything is beautiful, everything's state-of-the-art, almost everything is brand spanking new. Uh, multiple buildings are going up, while other buildings, the, the paint is still drying on the wall. They haven't even finished those, and they're building more. So this was, this was the case during the whole tour. And there were several times along the way that Jamie and I would, stop and like whisper to each other like you know our school wasn't like this you know northland is a little 800 person school in the middle of northeast wisconsin 30 minutes from any civilization whatsoever literally uh had none of those things and this stood out to me nowhere more than in the dining hall so at northland again little school middle of nowhere you know our dining hall was very small probably 
not too much bigger than this room, a little bit, but not too much bigger than this room. And for lunch, for example, when you walked into the dining hall, you had three options, okay? Option one was a salad bar. And by salad bar, I mean like an eight-foot rolling cart that they put some lettuce on, all right? So that was your salad bar option. Option two was the sandwich table. They brought out a folding table, set it up, and they put trays of, it was always the same thing. It was turkey, ham, and roast beef, two different types of cheese, a couple of different types of bread, and some lettuce, tomato, and onion. That was it. Okay, you pick from that, make a sandwich, however you want. That's one option. Then the third and final option was the hot food line. So every day there'd be, you know, a hot food thing, like cheeseburgers or spaghetti or whatever the case may be, and there'd be some sides that would go with that. But that was it. You didn't have multiple options. If you didn't like that, you you definitely couldn't go off campus, I'll give you that. You couldn't get anywhere, anything close to school, so you had to go back to your room and eat ramen. Dinner was worse, but dinner, there were only two options. You still had the salad bar, and then all you had was the hot food line. Um, and if it was like fish stick night, you were definitely going for ramen at that point because no one wanted to eat those things. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't very exciting. Not at Liberty. We walked in there. And if I heard him right, and I believe that this is the correct number, if it wasn't low, maybe, but he said that there were 22 different food stations available in the dining hall. And he wasn't kidding. There was a made-to-order omelet station, a chef's choice station, which just changed every day, whatever the guys had, I guess. A comfort food station, basically, you know, like pot roast, chicken pot pies, those kinds of things. A made-to-order burger station, a general grill station. They just had like hot dogs and chicken tenders, like nonstop. Uh, an all-day breakfast station, an oriental-themed health food station, an oriental-themed non-health food station. There was a full-out Mongolian grill in the middle. Like, if you've ever been to a Mongolian grill and seen the big thing, you know, they have one of those out in the middle. You can get your Mongolian grill. Uh, there was a humongous salad bar that ate Northland salad bar for lunch. There was a cereal bar, a continental breakfast bar, a pizza place, an Italian place, two different Mexican-themed places, and multiple dessert stations in an entire room with, I think, more than one food station in it dedicated to athletes and people who were, like, training who wanted to eat in a certain way. So it was, like, you know, gluten-free and high protein, low carb, and all that stuff. Anyone could go in, but that was a whole room kind of dedicated to that. It was overwhelming, uh, especially from someone coming from a school like I went to. It was particularly overwhelming. It did not remind me of college. It reminded me of a cruise ship because it's, yeah, some of you already thought it, right? It's 7 a.m. to 10 p.m., all-you-can-eat eating from 22 different food stations. Uh, yeah, talk about, a, or excuse me, talk about variety. You know, Jamie and I went to the Mongolian Grill, delicious. The kids got pizza. The table next to us, the people all had burritos. And then this one kid, they all look like kids now. I mean, getting older. They, one kid comes through. <laughs> He's got two bowls mounded with Fruit Loops. That's his lunch. <laughs> I'm looking at this like, oh my goodness. I'm getting old. I know it. Uh, it was just crazy. And the word that comes to mind for this is smorgasbord. Hey, guess what I'm thinking about today? Smorgasbords. Uh, that was a really terrible transition. We're here in Galatians 6, and what we have here, there was no transition for today's sermon. I promise you, I did not have anything until yesterday afternoon. I, this is how bad it was this week. Uh, we're here in Galatians 6, and guess what we have at the end of this uh, section we're in this morning? A smorgasbord, all right? Uh, that's where we're at. Now, normally when I say we're going to have a smorgasbord sermon, what that typically has meant in the past is that as we've worked through the text, I've come across certain things that I wanted to share with you that I couldn't fit into a regular sermon for time's sake, but I didn't want to not share them, so I kind of save them all to the end and give them to you in one big variety pack kind of sermon. That's not what I mean today at all. 
today, what we have here is actually Paul laying out the smorgasbord for us. Now, I'm actually just walking through the text like we normally would, but Paul seems here to have a variety of topics that he just wants to cover with the Galatians before he finishes this letter. Now, we started this section last week in verses 1 through 10 here. Paul has four different points of application that he wants to make for them, and that, as I mentioned to you last Sunday, some people, when they look at these four points and they compare them to the rest of the letter, they don't see any connection to the rest of the letter at all. Now, I don't agree with that. I, you know, I have two things that sort of prevent me from going down that path of thinking. One is the fact, again, I mentioned this last Sunday, that Paul is always very purposeful in his writing. He doesn't just throw out random things. He's not strange or crazy with his, his writing. So when Paul is writing something in a letter, the, the automatic assumption should be that, hey, this has a point. This has a purpose. This has a connection into whatever's going on, either what's been written before or into their particular context, something that we might, know about, might not know about, but they do. Uh, and so that's one thing. The second thing, speaking of context, is that if we keep the larger context of Galatians in view as we work through these points, a number of them really do make sense. As long as I can keep that big picture story in view, which hopefully you know very well by now, I don't think we'll have any trouble working through this. So I don't agree with those who say that this is just a completely random grab bag of applications. I know that all of these comments are directly applicable to the Galatians and their situation. I may not be able to 100% explain how they all relate to one another, but I know they all relate back to the Galatian church, and so we're going to go through it in that kind of, of detail today. Now, last Sunday, we covered the first and biggest of these four applications in verses 1 through 5, and in those verses, Paul gives instructions and warnings to those who are going to be interacting with brothers who are struggling with sin. He wants to address that, and so I kind of explained that to you in four parts. First of all, uh, who should be doing that? It is people who are walking in the Spirit. Secondly, what is their goal in that moment? It is to restore. They were trying to restore the believer back to walking in the Spirit. Third, how do they do it? Uh, they are simply doing it gently, not harshly. And then fourth, what's the, what's the danger in that process? Well, the danger was pride, and so he warns them about that, and that's where we were last Sunday. That was application one. Today, we will see that application number two has absolutely nothing to do with that. Uh, application two is found here in verse six, and he says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, this is a standalone point of application unconnected to the prior point, and the meaning of it, I think, is very clear. He's simply telling the Galatians to provide for their teachers. Now, biblically, this makes complete sense. Uh, as you look throughout the entire scriptures, you see it modeled in the Old Testament, but also commanded in the New that those who are in the service of God, those who are teaching, should be provided for by the people who they serve. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13-14, Paul makes mention of both the Old Testament and New Testament concepts. He says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the uh, sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So you see him looking back and saying, here's the Old Testament system. This is the model. Hey, we're going to do something similar here in the New Testament. If they're serving in this capacity, you should take care of them. Uh, the better known passage on this point is 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18. 
Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So the biblical principle here is pretty clear. If this person or even an animal is engaged in labor and toil on your behalf, then your responsibility at that point is to provide for them out of that toil. And that's why he uses that symbolism here of the of muzzling an ox. If you've got an oxen who is out there and he's working, treading your grain that's going to feed your family, don't you dare put a muzzle on that animal. If he wants to eat some of the grain, let him eat the grain. He's working in it. This is what he's doing. Let him enjoy the fruit of his labor even as he's going through that. And so that's the meaning of, of, the, of the idea there. And the principle is very simple to understand, and it applies here to teachers of God's word as well. So biblically, that makes complete sense. But contextually, I don't know why this is here. This is the first time we've heard anything in this letter about any potential issues between the church and their teachers. So, you know, why is Paul making this comment at this particular point? Well, I don't know. You know, have the Galatians stopped providing for their teachers? Perhaps. I'm not sure. It would definitely be possible given the, the command, but I can't say for sure. Or was Paul simply concerned that once they read this letter, some of them might stop providing for their teachers in some kind of like protest or maybe even a sinful response, and he's trying to cut them off at the pass a little bit? Again, perhaps. I don't know. But knowing that Paul is not random with his writing assures me that there is some kind of a context here back into the Galatian situation, even if I can't see it and I don't know it. Regardless, the application stands on its own, and it's one we need to obey, and I'll apply this to us at the end. Application number three is found in verses seven and eight. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, let me just clarify something really quickly here at the outset. You know, Paul just mentioned in verse 6 the financial care of the teachers in the church. And now here he starts talking about sowing and reaping, about planting and harvest, right? So you see these ideas of financial care, sowing and reaping going together. And what ends up happening in some people's minds when they read this is they instantly begin to draw a connection between this passage here and Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, which says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Why? For God loves a cheerful giver. So they, they see that one. There in 2 Corinthians, they see this one here in Galatians, and some people begin to connect the ideas of, of giving with sowing and reaping and as if these two passages are the same. That is not the case. So if you're thinking that or you instantly your mind went there, that's, that's incorrect. Verse 6 is not connected to verses 7 and 8 in terms of application. These are separate applications on the buffet, and, and that becomes obviously clear. If you simply pay attention to the context that he gives for sowing and reaping here in verse 8, he's talking about sowing to the flesh versus sowing to the spirit. So if you sow to the flesh, if you sow to your sin nature, then from your sin nature, you are going to reap corruption. This isn't about giving, okay? This is about how you're living, so in other words, if you live for sin, guess what? Sin's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy you. 
you can't plant sin in your garden and then be shocked that you get a sin plant growing up out of it. You plant tomatoes, you expect to get tomatoes. You put in tulip bulbs in the fall, you expect to see some tulips in the spring. You expect to get back what you put in. And so if you plant sin, if you sow to the flesh, you are going to get corruption, death, and destruction. Conversely then, if you sow to the Spirit, you receive eternal life from the Spirit. So there's two ways of life being contrasted here, two different outcomes. And this is why he begins with the warning of verse 7. Hey, look, don't be deceived. Don't, Don't deceive yourself. Don't think that you can do this thing over here and just go on as if no one's ever going to care or know whatever and expect that nothing will ever happen. If you're going to sow to sin, if this is the lifestyle you're going to live, you're going to get corruption. You're going to see the effects of that playing itself out in your life, in your marriage, in your home, in your family, and whatever the case may be. So don't, don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. You can't go down a path of sin and not assume that you won't reap what you sow. What you sow is what you reap. And again, not only is this an obvious biblical principle, but this time it definitely makes sense within the Galatian context because what you have here is a church where there's at least a portion of the believers there who, in the name of the genuine freedom they have in Christ, are going out using that as an excuse for sin. So he's giving them a warning. Okay, you're going to do that? You're going to go out and Use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Know this, don't be deceived. Don't don't be deceived. God's not mocked. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. It's not intended to be a scare tactic. It's just telling you the truth. And so this flows out of and naturally fits into everything we've seen, not only in the context of Galatians, but even chapter 5, and I'm talking about the life of the flesh, life of the Spirit. It's both a warning and an application for the Galatian believers. And again, I will apply it to us at the end. The final application, number 4, is found in verses 9 and 10. He says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And again, it's not directly connected to the last one, but it obviously has some overlapping thoughts and ideas here. Uh, His focus this time is on doing good, which I would assume to be a practical outworking of what it means to live your life in the Spirit. If you're living in the Spirit, you're walking in the Spirit, you're going to be doing good. I think you can definitely make an argument for that. But even with that connection, it still isn't tied directly to it. It stands alone like the others, and the point is clear. Don't stop doing good. Got it? Don't don't stop doing good. Now, let's just Let's just pause for a moment and think about these two words here of doing good. Um, Because what exactly do they mean? Well, in some people's minds, doing good is kind of a a big thing. It's kind of like a big idea. It's like in order to really do good in life, I have to, you know, give lots, I mean, lots of money to something. Or I have to, uh, you know, lay down my life. I have to go into missions to a third world country for the rest of my life. And so they've got these big kind of grandiose ideas of what it means to do good. But as you look at the scriptures, you don't, you don't get that sense from them. You know, Jesus does talk about there's no greater love than a man laying down his life for his friends. Is that good? Sure, that's doing good. But Jesus also says, if you give a cup of cold water in my name, <laughs> you don't lose your reward. I don't know about you, but I see a pretty, pretty broad, you know, gulf between laying down my life for my friend and giving a cup of cold water. I, that's a pretty broad spectrum of opportunities there. Even showing kindness, love, all of these things fall on that spectrum. 
And there's no litmus test or official list I can give you as to what constitutes doing good and what doesn't other than this, and that is Jesus' words that we have looked at so many times now, John 13, 34, 35, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another as I have loved you. And so for me, as I think about what it means to do good, I, I ask myself this question. Is the act in question, is the thing I'm thinking about doing, whatever the case may be, is it being motivated by, empowered by, caused by my attempt to show the same love that Christ showed me to others? Or is it being motivated by something else? My own pride, my own reputation, my own whatever the case may be. If it's being motivated by that kind of Christ-like love that Paul talks about, or excuse me, Jesus talks about in John 13, 34, and 35, then I'd say it probably safely falls in the category of doing good. And if it doesn't, I think you can safely assume that it doesn't. So with that said, his point is, don't stop doing good. Don't, don't get tired of it. Keep doing it because you will reap. He brings back the farming imagery. You will reap if you don't give up. Your good will produce results. So then keep it up. And I love that he says here, as you have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That doesn't mean, you know, if you can squeeze it in on Tuesday after lunch, do good. It means every time the opportunity presents itself, do good. Every time. Um, it's really addressing the providence of God in life. And I when I think about this, I like to use a little bit older phrase that's kind of fallen out of fashion in the Christian world, but you'll hear it still every now and then. Some of you will recognize it. For some of you, it might be new. And it's the idea of divine appointments. You ever heard people talk about divine appointments in life? Um, you know, this is the issue. Do you believe that in God's sovereign providence over your life, that he not only knows what your day is going to hold tomorrow, that, but that he will actually bring opportunities for you to do good in your day. Do you really genuinely believe that God will, that's the kind of God he is. You know, so you got a person at work who, you know, you're not even wanting to talk about a problem, but you're like sitting there and you're having a conversation. The next thing you know, you find out there's trouble in their marriage. Is that, is that not an opportunity at that moment that you didn't have to go find? It came to you. That God has brought to you now to do good for them. Or you're at home and you get a phone call and someone needs help, something big or something small. Do you really believe that that potentially isn't random? That maybe God and his sovereignty and the providence in which he governs this world has put that in your lap so that you can do good with it for them and maybe for others? That maybe God has these kinds of divine appointments for you and that he works through his own providence to bring you these kinds of opportunities. I absolutely believe that. So then, as those opportunities present themselves, do good to everyone. But he says here, especially do it to those who have the household, uh, household of faith. In other words, our good deeds are not to be limited, but they are to be targeted. As, as I have opportunities throughout the day, whatever, big, small, little, you know, it doesn't matter. Do good. Do good every time you turn around, do good. Do good to someone, bless them in some way, I, whatever the case may be. But the target of our good deeds should ultimately be towards one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be especially pursuing it in this realm more than anywhere else, so particularly do good to them. Make that a goal, a focus, an emphasis of your life, and you will do well in obeying the Scriptures. Now, those are three completely random things. Let me try to apply them for you as best I can here. First, 
let's talk about caring for your teachers. I'm in a unique opportunity or unique place now to talk about this one a little bit here. Uh, not just because of you know our own situation of life, but even because of of the books I wrote and that came out just a few months ago and opportunities I've had since then. So in the past six months, I've talked to more pastors than I've probably talked to in my entire life. I'm talking one-on-one, phone calls, emails, Facebook, uh, you name it. I've had all kinds of interactions, big, small, long-term, short-term, you name it, right? And particularly on this topic, because that's what the books I wrote were about, so I've gotten to hear a lot about this. And unfortunately, I am sad to report that having had all of these conversations over the past six months, um, I'm pretty discouraged about the overall state of the church in America. I really am. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Caleb, let me use the story you told me. Caleb, and he didn't do anything wrong. Caleb, uh, everybody's like, Caleb's like, what did I do? A few months ago, uh, we were talking, and Caleb told me the story of one of our professors at Northland. All right, So this was a guy who was a Bible teacher. Before he became a Bible teacher, he had been a, prof- uh, excuse me, a pastor at a local church somewhere, a little church. And um, I don't know how long he had been there. I don't remember all the details, but he couldn't feed his family. Not because he was living like extravagantly. It was because the church was paying him a poverty-level wage. And he had reached a point where he sincerely could not put food on the table. So he decides to go to the leadership team, the deacon board, I would assume, if I had to guess. Uh, he goes to the deacon board of the church, and he tells them, look, I can't feed my family can you give me more money? So they go into a meeting, which is the first problem in this story. If you hear that from someone and you have to go into a meeting, I'm already upset with you at this point now. But anyway, they go into a meeting, they come out, and they deny his request because here is the philosophy of caring for pastors that this church had. Keep them poor, keep them faithful. So I hear this story from Caleb, and it was the first time I'd ever heard that story, and I was like, I was upset hearing it. And I was in this uh, Facebook group, it was like a pastor's group, and so there's all these pastors, are all talking. I shared that story. I, I haven't been on social media very long, by the way, so I don't have a lot of experience with what's like a good number of responses to things. Like it. But of everything that I've ever put out, nothing got as much response from this in that pastor's form. I probably had 200 pastors instantly start, I mean, like, And you know what the unfortunate reality was? Over half of them were like, that's our church today. One guy even said, if I remember correctly, he said that his church's version of that was keep them poor, keep them humble. And he got $400 a week for serving his church. Now, it's not about money. I want you to understand that. I'm not complaining about that, but that's poverty. I don't know if he's married. I don't know if he's got kids. I don't know his full situation. This is Facebook. You you don't know all those details. But I'm looking at that, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, (laughs) And I was angry. I'm like looking at these guys, and it, it made me super thankful for Cornerstone because that's not us. I'm, by God's grace, that's not, that's not us. We, I, I, I knew we were special, but I didn't understand how special until the past six months of dealing with all these other people and hearing from them. It's sad out there. And I'm not talking about churches that can't do. Let me make that very clear to you. There's small churches, church plants. They're doing all they can. It's not about the money in the end. It's not about how much they do or don't do. It's all about the mentality. It's the difference between what can we do versus how little can we do. There's, that divides churches right there, that mentality alone. What, what can we do versus how little can we do? And so, you know, it makes me upset personally to hear those kinds of things. And I will say to you, just as why, by way of our application, uh, make sure that never happens here. <laughs> make sure that never happens here. 
And let me go a step further than that, because Cornerstone has been unique over the years in that we're kind of like a feeder church, if you think about it, meaning, you know, people move to the area. This is a very transient area, so they move here, and they come to Cornerstone for three, four, five years, whatever God may have, and they learn, and they grow, Lord willing. But then, because of the Navy, because of life, the ages of the people who have come to Cornerstone over the last 10, 15 years, they move. That's just the nature. We're a church on a conveyor belt. That's what we've called ourselves for years now. People come in, they learn, and they go. For a long time, that bothered me until one day it occurred to me, wait a minute. That's an amazing opportunity because through the 15 years of ministry here at Cornerstone, how many churches across America have we had a chance to impact? Because you come here, you're here for four or five years, you learn, you grow, and then you're gone. And hopefully you go out and you go to your next church and you're like, hey, let's hit the ground running. I got some thoughts, I got some ideas, I got some energy and I have some passion, let's go do some stuff. Uh, hopefully we've been a blessing to lots of churches. Well, on this point, if God ever moves you on and you end up in another church someday, I want you to figure this out. If you see that it's the kind of church that's the how little can we do kind of church, leave. That's not your church. Because so many things are wrong with that mentality, I can't even begin to explain it this morning. And if you have any chance to ever speak into it, make sure you speak into the how much can we do. It may not be a lot, and that's okay. You know, most pastors have not into, uh, did not go into the ministry to get rich, and they're, they're fine with that. But the mentality better be do what you can. Care for your pastors. Love them in that way. I pray that God will give me some opportunities to speak into that, and some churches better watch out if they ever invite me and I find the other one out because I'll let them have it and all, holy goodness. Uh, <laughs> You'll have to pray for me at that moment if I have that opportunity because it won't be pretty. Uh, I won't get invited back a second time. Anyway, care for your pastors. That's the first point. Second, let's apply this one. Don't sow to the flesh, sow to the spirit, right? So, I mean, how do you add more application there? That seems like a big and obvious one for us. And yet, you know, I'd point out that oftentimes I have come to understand as I've you know, looked at my own life and looked at other people's lives that our sin nature, it feels to me like, a, like an animal. That's kind of my analogy, my own personal illustration. And the question is, are you going to feed it? You know, if, you, if, you, if you feed it, if you're sowing to your flesh, it's going to grow. It's going to get stronger. It's going gonna, it's gonna to act more because you're, you're, you're sowing to it. You're feeding that thing. So if that's the case and you're doing that this morning and you, you know I'm talking to you, whoever you may be, the Spirit is convicting on it, stop feeding it. Stop it. That's what he says. Don't do it. Because if you do, you're going to reap corruption. It's going to bring death and destruction to you. And again, that's not meant as a scare tactic. That is meant as a wake-up call for you. To stop, stop, stop. You're only nailing your own coffin together. It's, it's, it's not worth it. Instead, so to the Spirit. You say, how do I do that? Well, here's Stacy's broken record. Scripture and prayer. It never improves. It never changes. It never gets better. You've got to be in the Scriptures, and you've got to be in prayer. Don't, don't come to me or to anyone else in this room and say, man, I'm really struggling with this, when you're not even attempting to come to God's word looking for help. At that point, if all you're wanting to do is just come tell me you're struggling, but you're not doing anything, you're just complaining to me, and I don't really have time to listen to that. You're struggling with sin? Be in God's word. Be in it every way you can. Be reading it, memorizing it, meditating on it, listening to it. You've got, it's not like a talisman that's going to like keep sin away. If, you, you know, if I read my verse a day, sin stays away kind of thing. It's not how that works. But I know this much, the Spirit works through the Word. 
The Spirit works through the Word. If you're in the Word, the Spirit is going to work. He's going to work. And on this note, I'll just, you know, not that I have been a good example of this over the course of my life as a believer, but, you know, I've come and gone out of this and right now um, back into it with our community group, which I'm really thankful for. But let me just stress the importance of Scripture memory. You know, I said to our community group the other night when we were talking about this, I said, to me, Bible memorization is kind of like loading the Spirit's gun. It's like every time you memorize Scripture, it's like you're putting another bullet in. And you don't know when the Spirit's going to pull the trigger on those things. You might be in a conversation with someone, and, and out of the blue, the Spirit brings a verse of Scripture to mind that you, you remembered, that you memorized, and you're able to use it, and God uses his word at that moment in that conversation to change yourself or the other person. You might be in a moment of struggle. You might be in a moment of anger, discouragement. You name it. I don't know. You'll find that as you hide God's word in your heart, and again, it's not like a magic bullet. I'm not... I'm not I'm just being honest with like how the scriptures work. You're going to find the Spirit taking that word and using it in ways you might never even have imagined. So hide God's word in your heart. Be reading it, be memorizing it, meditating on it, and then be in prayer. Come to God every day pleading, God, I am dependent on you, Jesus. If you do not live through me, I can't say no to sin. I can't say yes to righteousness. I can't do any of this. If you don't fill me with your spirit today, Jesus, I'm hopeless. That constant, everyday drumbeat of dependence in prayer is critical, critical to you living the Christian life. So do not sow to your flesh, sow to the spirit by being in the word and being in prayer. And then third, do good to everyone, but especially to believers. You know, I mentioned earlier the idea of divine appointments. And uh, so I had this, uh, Toby DeBoss, he's the president of Crisis Pregnancy Center of Tidewater. We're doing the baby bottle campaign right now. He's become a good friend to me over the years. I love getting together with him, just mutually sharpening. Just he and I get along really well. We had a breakfast a few weeks ago. And we we're just talking, just talking about this and that. And somehow we got onto the topic of his ministry. And when you think of Toby and you think of Crisis Pregnancy Center, you know, I say, what's Toby's ministry? You'd be like, well, it's stopping abortion, right? Fighting abortion, that's Toby's ministry. In a way, no, that's not his ministry because he's not actually the one doing it. You know, he's not in the rooms with the ladies. He's not doing the ultrasounds. He's not trying to do the counseling with them. He, he doesn't talk to many, if any of them, on a regular basis. As the president of a nonprofit ministry like CPC, he spends the majority of his time being the public face of the ministry, uh, casting the vision of the ministry, letting people know what's going on, and fundraising. When you think about it, that's what his role is, and that's true of anyone in that kind of role. That's just how it works. And we were talking about this, and so, you know, he was like, you know, I have so many meetings. Every week he's meeting, meeting all kinds of people, meeting you know, this and that. And he said at first when he started that role, he thought, well, my job here is fundraising, right? Like, that's what I should do. I meet people, and I'm trying to fundraise for the, for the ministry. But over time, he began to realize that wasn't really his job. And he began to view each of those meetings that came up as being divine appointments. He actually used that phrase even that time we talked. As being a moment where God had put him together with another individual for a reason he might not even know, to have a ministry to them in that moment. So he told a story just as an example. He'll probably be mad at me for sharing it. But uh, he had a meeting with this guy, an unbeliever, um, a business owner. I won't go into all the details of how he knew some of the details that I'm sharing here, but this was a guy who, no doubt, had paid for a number of abortions over the years from women he had gotten pregnant. And now this guy's a little bit older in life, and he's sitting across the table, and he's clearly feeling a little bit of guilt for his past. And so he pulls out his wallet, pulls a check out, apparently a sizable one, puts it on the table, slides it across, and says, here, I want to help your ministry. 
Toby, having heard the story, knowing the details and the context, looks at the check, slides it back to him and says, you can't buy forgiveness. <laughs> Gives him the gospel. Can't, you can't buy your way out of your guilt. You sinned. You sinned. Each of those times you sinned, no amount of money is going to get you away from that. Um, talk about a divine appointment, right? What a, I don't know if I would have the ability to do that in that moment because it's probably a good check, but, but, you know, I appreciated his heart so much. He's recognizing the moment the doing good is not the money. It's not the raising funds for CPC at that moment. What was doing good was that man's heart, was speaking truth to that man in a very powerful way because who turns down someone's big check? Toby turned it down and pushed it back to him and said, I don't want your check. I want you to get right with Jesus. That's what I ultimately want. And, and God works in those moments. And so listen for those kinds of things. It may, anything be as, it may not be anything as big or exciting or dramatic as that kind of a moment for you, but if you're simply listening for the opportunities to do good in life, they're going to come. You're going to hear about someone at work who's having surgery on Thursday. Why don't you be the one person on Friday morning to call them and say, hey, I, heard, I was praying for you yesterday. How'd your surgery go? You're going to blow their mind. Why don't you be the one person when you hear somebody's, you know, having trouble with something at their house and you know how to fix it, why don't you be the one person who actually shows up? Not because you were asked to or paid to, just because you wanted to help them. Nobody does that. You do that, you've just blown their minds. Um, I, I just think that if we were open our eyes to all of the potential opportunities for doing good around us, we would be amazed and what God puts in front of us each and every day, and it would actually maybe cause us to begin doing some of them. Now, let me be specific even more on two points. First of all, I think you should try to be strategic with your doing good, meaning what are you good at? What are you passionate about? What is something you would do just because you like doing it? And you, why don't you go find someone who needs that and bless them with it? You can fix a car. There's got to be people around you sitting in here this morning who need something fixed on their car. Why don't you go bless them? Hey, you, you can do something at someone's house. You know how to fix a shingle, all right? Then go help someone who needs help with a shingle. You can make a meal. There's got to be someone around here who needs a meal because they're sick, they're, something's happened. Make them a meal. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be crazy. It doesn't have to be, why do we make this so complicated? Find something and do it. You don't have to pray about it for a week. Just pick and do it, all right? It's that simple. Just do it. A second point, a very, very detailed application and suggestion to you, I think you should also budget for it, funny enough. You know, this was something that Jamie and I did not do when we first got married, and you know, we knew the importance of giving, and so in our budget from the very beginning of our marriage, we, we tried to give. But then we'd run into opportunities or situations where maybe we needed to do something else. Have the money. Like, you know, like, how do you, how do you make a meal when you're already, like, Cash is tight, and you're young, you're newly married, kids are little, and you're like, what do you do? And, and you, so all of a sudden, you're like kind of squeezed, and you want to do things, but you can't. And so finally, I don't remember why we started this. We just made a little secondary budget. We didn't reduce the first one, okay? Don't change. All right, we didn't, we didn't reduce the first giving, but we, we just added. And it was just, okay, now someone needs a meal. Jimmy, just go buy the groceries, and it's already, it's already planned for. We need to take care of someone, you know, Bring them a meal from, get them a pizza that night because they just, whatever, you know, just to encourage them. Okay, it's a budget for that. 
And you will find that when you begin thinking like that, and even strategic with how you're planning out your, your, your finances as a believing family to make room for those kinds of things, it changes your perspective on it. All of a sudden, you're like, how can we spend this money this year? <laughs> like uh, some of my budgets I, I want to spend under, right? But that's when I want to I max that thing out. I want to find ways to use that. And it might be in weird things, things I never thought about. I mean, buy a $10 Starbucks gift card for a, card for a couple and keep their kids and say, go get coffee for the next two hours and come back when you're done, okay? That, what a blessing that can be in that moment. You can do good if you think about it, plan for it, or strategic about it. I don't think this has to be anywhere near as complicated as we make it. Do good to everyone, especially to those who are believers. Now, these, these might be random applications, but I promise you they're not purposeless. Uh, not only do they apply to the Galatians, but they apply to us. And if I had to pick a theme to bind them all together into one kind of thread. The only theme that I could pick for this is that these are the kinds of things that people who walk in the Spirit do. If you're a person who's walking in the Spirit, these will be the kinds of things you do. Not just these things, other things, but it, these will be the kinds. Of, so people who walk in the Spirit, they're going to restore sinning brothers in a spirit of gentleness. People who walk in the Spirit, they're going to take care of their teachers. People walking in the Spirit, they don't sow to the flesh. They are going to sow to the Spirit. They're going to pursue that. People who walk in the Spirit are going to do good to everyone, but especially to those who are the household of faith. So go. Walk in the Spirit. Obey the Scriptures. Do these things and more Beyond them, if we do all of that, I think we will be fulfilling and obeying the scriptures and bringing honor and glory to our Lord. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me? Father, these things are kind of all over the board today. Various thoughts that Paul had for the Galatians that we know are specific to them, apply to them, but we see the application to us as well. And we recognize that, that we need to be obeying in ways also. So I pray that you will do this in us, Jesus, that you will work in us to give us obedience. We, we can't do it in our own flesh. We can't even walk in the flesh and trying to obey. We have to walk in the Spirit. So Spirit, fill us and use us in all of these ways and take all of these little detailed things and all of the other things that we might think of surrounding them and cause this to be a testimony to the world around us and to one another that we truly are the disciples of Jesus Christ that we claim to be. If that's the case, then then we will be so thankful, so grateful for your working in us. And so it's to that end we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.